Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Today's episode is sponsored by WIND, a fixed price e-discovery tool by Estet that lets you review documents and relativity at $299 per month. Learn more or sign up online at windlegal.com. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest is known as being one of the most connected real estate lawyers throughout the worldwide real estate community. He specialized and adapted his area of focus to meet the needs of the market over a 30-year legal career. The managing partner of his firm, Duval and Stockenfeld, Bruce Stockenfeld, welcome to Left Foot. Thank you, Nicole. It's great to be here. Appreciate your having me on the show. Great to have you as a guest on our program, Bruce. Bruce, which of your personal strengths or habits have allowed you to be successful in developing business for yourself and for your firm? There's four things that I I think I would probably emphasize. The first one is relentlessness. By the way, when I'm teaching, you know, the younger lawyers in my firm, I, I, I really hone in on this. Relentlessness, I never, ever give up. I get down when I fail, but then I pick myself up and just keep trying because one of the things about marketing is it's it's disheartening. There's constant things that just don't go your way no matter how much you try. And if you give up, then you're out. If you don't give up, then you keep going. Second thing, open-mindedness. Okay, I mean, it's it's hard for, you know, I guess, you know, humbugs like me that think we know everything in the world to admit it. But the f- one of the basic lessons maybe in life, really, is to realize that no matter how much you do, you don't know everything. I definitely don't know everything. I think I do, and then all of a sudden I realize that everything I learned, there's something actually much smarter, there's someone much better than I can learn from. So I'm super open-minded. This sounds like a platitude, like listen to others, but it's not. I really, really listen to others. Third, failure. Okay? I mean, failure is, is constant I mean, almost every day there's failure. Uh, thank God there's successes too. But when I fail, okay, I don't whitewash myself. I don't blame external events. I don't pretend that I really did good and there was something went wrong. I blame myself first. I look at what I did and I say, hey, could I have done it different? Could I have done it better? If I feel like I blew it, and that still happens after probably several thousand, no exaggeration, pitches that I've done over the last 10 years, I sometimes just blow it. When I do, I admit it to myself. I blew it. No one, no one else to blame. And then I, I actually tell the truth. I make myself kind of miserable, usually for one day. I don't know why. That's the amount of time I blame myself. And then I say, okay, learn from it. And then uh, move on. The last, the last one, which kind of mixes into the into the other three, is I I I ruthlessly analyze my performance and the performance of my team. Okay, I I don't just go in there and flop around. I think back on everything we've done. I prepare everything as as meticulously as possible, and then I, I really try to give myself a very very honest assessment of what we did fantastic, what we did okay, and what we didn't do that well. Anyway, those are the things that that have worked for me. I hope that answers your question. Fantastic, and appreciate the detail. We ask that question a lot, and we don't get a lot of good details. So I'm going to ask you one or two questions around that. First, I am an absolute believer that you have to analyze what you've done, what's worked, what's not, make adjustments, and go forward from there. Can you give us an example of something that either you did in the past 
past during meetings to earn business with a new client? Something you did in the past that through that process you were able to adjust or change and have more success? Here's one lesson I learned a long, long time ago. We had a pitch for a prospective client. And we were told by the guy who knew the guy that was getting us in there to describe it colloquially that the client wanted a law firm that would just handle everything completely and they wouldn't have to do a thing. They wouldn't even have to pay attention. All the law firm would just do everything. And some clients are like that. Some clients are the other way around. They want to be in every detail and other clients don't. So we went to this pitch. We sat down and I immediately explained exactly why we were a firm that could do that. And we do that for a lot of clients. I went over in excruciating detail how we did this, that, the other thing. So as soon as I was done, the person I was talking to said that they want the exact opposite, okay? They, they really don't want lawyers to do that. They want to be involved in every single you know, detail. They read all the documents. They're super careful. It's the last thing they want. Okay, so I completely, totally, utterly blew it. It was an absolute disaster. No, we didn't get that client. It was, it was really awful. And the reason was the intel wasn't really right. Okay, so that's what I did then. What do I do now? Well, this is, this is probably the most important thing in a pitch. There's nothing more important than this. All right, and if people are listening, slow down, listen to this. The first thing you do when you get in the room is you don't tell them about how wonderful you are or, or anything. You ask them questions. You ask what they're trying to accomplish in the business world. You ask them what they, what they care about in their lawyers. You ask them how they use lawyers. You ask them as much as you can to learn what matters to them. They talk first, okay? Because if you think about it, if I had just done that 10 years ago when I did that horrible pitch they still remember today, the guy would have told me right then and there what he cares about. And every single word I said would have been completely different. It would have been honest either way because honestly, depends on the client. If the client wants a lawyer that's a fanatic over details and gets them involved in a recall, sure, we can do that. If a client wants the opposite, we can do that as well. So the first lesson, the first thing is when you're starting a pitch, you get them to tell you what their needs are first. And I call it a rookie mistake to just go in there, sit down and start telling them how wonderful you are. I, I think that is the question you're asking me. Great response. And that is absolutely correct. And so many of us make that mistake. Believe me, I've had the same experience where we've prepared an entire presentation based on what we thought the client wanted instead of asking them, what are you looking for? How can we help you? What can we do for you? How do you want to work together? That kind of interaction, which is so helpful. L let's just jump back for before we go forward and talk about being relentless. In your mind, what does relentless look like? When I said relentless, there are always many different opportunities that I pursue. If I have a down day, I just keep going the next day. However, one thing I don't want to be is some annoying pain in the neck lawyer chasing some poor client for business. I hate the metaphor. It makes me kind of nauseous in a way. In terms of you know how we meet with people, we try not to make it, at least on day one, a, a pitch. We try to make it something very different. Okay, we're meeting to understand, you know, we're in the same industry, the potential client and us, we're in the real estate world. So we're meeting 
to try to understand what are they trying to accomplish in the real estate world. Okay, that's really the purpose of the meeting. And then we uh, have as clients or relationships, many other counterparties. And typically what we'll do is we'll see what kind of connections and overlaps there are between what they're doing or trying to do and either other clients, other things we've seen, other ideas, whatever it happens to be. We try to be really useful. Yes. I mean, obviously I have a motive. We, we do want to get legal work in our law firm. I mean, that's why that's, that's how we, we are in business. But I try to think about it. I'm there to be helpful to this potential client in the industry that he or she is in. To use the word relentless, I'm relentlessly trying to be incredibly helpful to them in the real estate industry. And I hope that one way or another, they will be pleased with that and either direct work to me or, or work on transactions with other clients that I benefit from or maybe refer people to me. So I, I just don't want to use the word relentless as applied to, to a single person because it just sounds so like I'm tracking the guy like a dog hunter in the wilderness or something. Appreciate the clarification. Your explanation that you just provided is a great lead into the next question about having a growth strategy. As a leader of your firm, obviously you employ many lawyers, many other team members within your firm, and you have to plan your business. And I'm assuming that a lost client is not a great thing to have occur and that you have to be constantly filling that funnel with with new clients and, and additional business at clients. That said, do you sit down each year with the other partners that are either equity partners or with the other main partners and really talk about strategy and how much business you have or how much business you're projecting to bring in from your current clients and where you might need to grow your business. If you do have a strategy, what does that look like and how do you go about executing on that strategy? I read all these these books written by all these professors and others, and I try to make some hay out of them. I'm going to start the answer to the question with a, a guy named Michael Porter. Michael Porter is a famous professor. He's at Harvard Business School. The strategy in a nutshell is this, is we try to be different rather than better. Okay, And this all, I give credit to this idea to Michael Porter, who's, who's a brilliant professor at Harvard Business School, who talks about competitive advantages. I learned a lot from him. And anyone that's listening who's really a student of strategy, competitive advantages, etc., I really do direct them to, to Michael uh, Porter. He, he, he's awesome. But if you think about it, what does it mean to be better? Sounds really cool, but it's stupid, and I'll tell you why. Like, think about the airport and renting a car. You know, 20 years ago, you go to the airport, it would be some nightmare. And then you saw, you know, people running through the airport. And then you saw people like being floated on a magic carpet through the airport. You go to the airport now, every single, it's like insane how fast you get your car. It's ridiculous. Thing is, every time anyone in the industry does anything that's innovative or good, guess what? Somebody else does the exact same thing. So all that happens when they get better is they get less profitable. Being better gives up all the upside to your clients, to your employees, to all sorts of other people, but it doesn't help you. So what does Michael Porter advocate? He says, be different. Don't be better, be different. The party who's buying your services, whether it's legal services or toothpaste, everyone's trying to commoditize you, saying you're all the same, therefore I want the cheapest price. All that better does is make it worse. If you're different, you're not commoditized, you're special and you're not competing with other people. Peter Thiel, another thinker who wrote a really cool book called Zero to One, coined a phrase which I love, and I literally think about it every single day. He says, 
Competition is evil. And boy, is he right. It's a horrible, horrible thing. If you went to college, you remember from economics course, perfect competition means that you have zero profit and you're going bankrupt. So the strategy here at this firm is to try to figure out how to be different. The heart of it, if you go to our website, is we call ourselves the pure play in real estate law. That's different. The the parties, the law firms that I, I hate to use the word compete, but the parties I compete with are major law firms. Okay, they're the branded firms, the top firms in the world. Some of you, I'm sure on the line are, are even from those firms. Okay, I can't possibly compete, there's that word again, with those firms. They're, you know, they have global brands, they you know, have a billion dollar revenue. I, I'm, I'm not on the playing field. However, In real estate, it's different. I have a major practice. It's one of the biggest in New York City. It's one of the coolest uh, client-based major transactions. If I define myself differently as the pure play in real estate law, I'm giving a message to clients that is very strong and very powerful and very believable that I am different from all the other firms. So strategically, we think that way as much as we can all the time. How can we be different from everybody else so we don't have to try to be better than Skadden Orps, which honestly, I don't see how I could possibly do. Excellent points. I did read an article that you wrote about power niching, and I am assuming we're going down the same lane with being different and that idea of really niching and specializing. Is it that plus? Is there some other component besides really special? Specializing in a particular space, or is that the core to what you would suggest as be be different? Power niche is, is sort of my thing, if you will. I've coined the phrase, I made it up, the power niche. What is that? Basically, what a power niche is, small-sized slice or niche within a bigger industry that no one else yet dominates or owns. The niche is not obvious, okay? It's not something like you pick an area of the law that somebody else already defined. No, it's something you figure out and you create it. You then step in and you learn everything about this niche. You tell everyone about it incessantly, constantly, till everyone identifies you with this niche. You basically are sort of staking out a homestead in virgin territory. And then this becomes a virtuous cycle as the more you know, the more you do, and then the more you know, and the more you do, and it just becomes a kind of a virtuous cycle. Before long, you're the world's expert in this small niche. And then you have bargaining power in that niche. So instead of begging for, you know, I don't know, business or legal work or tidbits in the bigger industry, you now have bargaining power in the smaller niche. I can give an example if you'd like. Let's look at Citigroup and let's look at banking. The reason I pick it is banking, you know, no offense to the banking, it's one of the worst industries in the world to market in. Okay. The government has effectively regulated innovation out of it by saying all banks pretty much do pretty much the same thing. It's really tough. So what did Citigroup do? All right. It's actually one of the most brilliant things I've ever seen. What they did is they said that we're going to market to lawyers and we're going to make a specialty out of banking for lawyers. Now, if you think about it, that sounds kind of dumb. Like, what's the difference between banking for a lawyer or anybody else? However, when they staked out their specialty as banking for lawyers, what happened was this. They started to learn everything they could about the legal industry. They learned every single thing about lawyers, the industry. They started to collect data on law firms. And they published this data, obviously anonymously, not attributed to the law firm. And it became so that if you were a law firm, you almost had to have some relationship with Citigroup or you would kind of be an outsider. You wouldn't really know what was going on inside your own industry. And it became, just like I'm describing in a parentage, a virtuous cycle. The more they did this, the more the law firms 
wanted to be part of it. And the more law firms wanted to be part of it, the more power and knowledge they got in the industry. Until today, 85 out of the top 100, this is what they told me, 85 of the top 100 law firms are clients and probably close to, I don't know, 90%, I would guess, of the Amlaw 200 are clients of their firm. So you think about what they did. It's a classic power niche. It sounds like it's banking, but it's not. The banking is just the banking, lending people money. But what was really exciting about it is the industry knowledge that they accumulated and then the way they were able to provide a special kind of value to these law firms. My firm itself, we'd be using another bank, but kind of hard for us to see how we can't become a customer of Citigroup at this point. So that's an example of a power niche in action. That is a great example. And that's where the Hildebrand study comes through, right? Because they own that. Thank you. That is a fantastic example. And now a word from our episode sponsor. Wind Legal is making e-discovery simple and beautiful. Sign up online at a fixed monthly price and get started using Relativity 9.5, the most popular and powerful e-discovery tool on the market. Wind membership is just $299. See why tech-savvy boutique law firms, nonprofits, and corporations are using Wind at windlegal.com. In practice, within your firm, about 70 lawyers? Yes. Do each of your lawyers have some type of slice or niche, or do groups of them have a niche where even within your own firm, you've had the opportunity to niche further? The, the answer is yes, but different people are at different stages of developing that. Our biggest niche, our power niche, if you will, is in the real estate, legal world, joint ventures, and corporate, so-called corporate real estate. That's kind of the power niche that we sell at the largest number of lawyers that the firm are in. However, each lawyer is encouraged to develop a power niche if they can. If you can't develop some sort of a power niche, you really your career really is at risk. If you don't have a power niche, what are you actually selling? I mean, is it just, you know, a commodity which with no pricing power and you're not going to be treated that well in the market? Every lawyer has to differentiate themselves. What we're hearing, especially as we interview in-house counsel, is they're no longer picking a firm or even a practice within a firm. They're picking a lawyer. It is a lawyer-by-lawyer decision at this point, even in the biggest companies. You know, not for everyday transactional work, for anything of substance. Bruce, two questions. Are there certain things that you've done in your career that have allowed you to ensure that you are keeping clients, expanding those clients, and and earning new clients? The the answer is... I do I do a, a ton of things. I write a publication called The Real Estate Philosopher. I write for Above the Law. I'm out about every single day meeting as many different people, learning as much as I can about the industry. I guess this is the biggest thing I would say I personally do is, is this. The value that I provide at this stage of my career is not so much legal in nature. I mean, my partners, to be honest, have, have, uh, have surpassed me in, in their ability to, to deliver really high quality legal services. The value that I provide is my knowledge of the real estate industry, my knowledge of how not just a few, but literally hundreds and maybe even thousands of different clients and relationships in the industry, my ability to work with a client to help them grow their business, which is ultimately the mission statement of the firm. So when you say, how how do I keep a client over a long-term period of time? It's something that requires a lot of work, a lot of effort, and a lot of care. So if you think about it, most lawyers, they have a client, they do a good job, the client says, great job, Steve, and then they hang up the phone. And then the lawyer goes off and does other things and waits for Steve to call again. And while the lawyer is waiting for Steve to call, as we all know, and everyone listening to this call is doing, all these lawyers are calling Steve, right? They're trying to get Steve to go and work with them. While this lawyer who did a great job for Steve is off doing something else. So what 
I think is really important is to stay in constant contact with Steve. Steve, not only just like harassing him for legal work, which exactly is what I don't want to do. It's more like, Steve, what are you trying to accomplish? What's going on with your company? Oh, wow, you lost a key employee. Well, maybe we know somebody that might be able to fill that role. Oh, wow, you're having trouble with your business model, too, too much competition. Well, come in, let's sit down and see if we can come up with an idea for that. Oh, you hate your boss? Oh, gee, you know, what are we going to do about that? Or you're getting sued or this or, we're tr- or you want to open an office in Bavaria, whatever it happens to be. I think the most important thing to, to, to do is to stay in constant contact with Steve, knowing what he's trying to accomplish in the business world and not just be a lawyer that does legal work when asked. I'm there to help him and also there to potentially let him know that, oh, you're trying to do X, Y, and Z. Well, actually, we happen to have somebody here who does X, Y, and Z super well, whatever happens to be. But if I just neglect Steve and let him you know, be by himself, I'm probably losing the relationship over time. And somebody else who's more aggressive or more available or just more there is going to get that client. It's a great piece of advice. We've heard a lot about the disappearing lawyer. It happens in, even during an active matter. We have lawyers in certain spaces that tend to go away and not communicate with the client. And I absolutely agree between matters. There has to be some contact, some communication. What do you suggest, Bruce? Monthly communications of some kind or touchbacks or do you remind yourself? Or is it more ad hoc where you read something and you say, wow, I think Mark would benefit from hearing about this? something that's more specific. You're asking a really great question. I'm going to give you an answer that's unfulfilling and fulfilling at the same time. It has to become something that sort of takes over your life. You have to basically make the client and the clients and what you do in the industry, your hobby, as well as your job. You have to fall in love with it. It has to be something that you think about all the time. And it, and it's constant that you're in communication with the client because almost every day, you know, you, you see an article, you see an idea, you see this, you see that. But it's not like you're forcing yourself to do it every 30 days or something like that, like a machine. It's it's that the client's somebody you love, you care about, you, you really want them to succeed. And, and you're thinking and root about them and rooting for them every day. And it's really easy for you to keep in constant communication because stuff's just hitting you and he's on your mind. And I think that's why it's both fulfilling and unfulfilling. A lot of lawyers define what they're supposed to do as do great legal work when asked. And that's obviously critically important. But this is about marketing, and, and that just doesn't work for marketing. Doing a great job is critical to a, law, a lawyer's career, but it is not marketing. It's not business development. It's not growing relationships. It's none of that stuff. It's just a different thing. You can sort of see it. Some people are just in love with the relationships, the clients, and growing it. Other people are in love with doing the legal work, and it's, it's hard for people in love with just doing the legal work to transform themselves into what I would call marketers or business developers. And if I can say one other thing on this too, and this is really important, virtually anybody can become a rainmaker. I mean, and a big one too. You don't have to be a chatty Kathy or Mr. Personality to bring in clients. You just don't have to do that. What you have to do instead, and I know I sound like a broken record, you have to develop a power niche, something in the industry that you are the world's expert on and you've defined as something you know a ton about. When that happens, people come to you. So first, maybe people in your own firm and people outside the firm, and your reputation grows in a small area that you've developed. You could be the guy that just sits there quietly, hardly does anything, and people will, will chase you down because you are the world's expert in your niche. It's that simple. Anyone really can do it. I, I hate watching people fail 
when they don't do that kind of thing. It's a great it's a great response. I've always believed and that is actually part of our mission. This is a process and it can be learned and you don't have to be an extrovert. I was debating with someone recently at a conference. They said, well, you can't be an introvert. And I said, well, you know what? Maybe not, but you do not have to be an extrovert to be successful at this. You need to find what works for you, develop a process around it and execute on the process and make adjustments. Bruce, what advice would you tell a lawyer who's looking to develop their practice? What advice would you give them on on things they should be doing to develop that practice? There's three things. I call them the three Bs. And when I'm teaching marketing at my firm or to anyone who will listen to me, I, I say, just do these three things and everything will be okay. And it really is true. So the first one is to get out and about. If you sit in your office, the odds are statistically high, nothing will happen. If you get out and about, it, nothing may happen anyway, but the chances go dramatically in the other direction. Go to a conference, go out with some friends, go out and about, be around the industry that you are in. It's number one. You watch the rain some of them are idiots and you're like, God, that guy brought in a client. He's a moron. But he was a moron that was out and about interacting with other people. You will never get from the client things that are going on, ideas you're not out and about. That's number one. Number two, be enthusiastic. Nobody wants a sad sack sitting around there, bringing him down with droning on about things. Be enthusiastic. Charge yourself up. We took a course here. It was the Dale Carnegie course. And that was like the most important lesson that we learned is be enthusiastic. Show the passion, the thrill, the love of what you were doing. That's the second thing. And the third thing, knowledge is power. And this comes back to my power niche. You have to have something to talk about. Just being out and about babbling about sports, you know, sometimes that will work. It's a lot better than doing nothing. But it's so much better if you have something that you're talking about, which is a slice of the industry that you're in, whether it's joint ventures or city group about lawyers. But it's something that's a topic of conversation, that small niche that you're dominating, that the person will remember. And then there's a fourth thing. I know I said there's three. So there's three things, but then there's a fourth one, which if you don't do it, the first three are neutered. And that is follow up. When you are out and about and being enthusiastic and talk about your power niche, if you don't follow up with the person, you've just wasted all your time. So after your meeting or whatever it was that you did, the next day, email the person and say, hey, it was great talking to you about whatever it happened to be. You started a relationship, keep it alive, turn it into something in the industry that is going to be useful to that person. Try to be really helpful. If you do those three things with the fourth one, you will be successful. If you don't, the odds are pretty high you will fail. Can't agree more. And that is part of what we teach in our challenges and teaching materials for lawyers. That fourth one, I am a huge believer in that. And it doesn't have to be significant, but it has to be more than a LinkedIn connection. It has to remind them of who you are. And then of course, you have to stay in that relationship and communicate and reach back here and there on in some basis that that is effective. A very good transition into the next question. The next question has to do with changing market conditions. And of course, your industry has seen a lot of changing market conditions in the last 30 years and, and definitely in the last 10 since 2008. The question asks is how you've adapted to those changes, changes in market conditions. And it relates back to those four, because I can tell you if you're doing those four, what I would do if the market was changing was turn one up or turn one down or turn all four up. If I felt that changing market conditions were really affecting my business, what would you do? How have you responded to changing market conditions? in your business? It's an interesting question. It depends on what changed, what, what we would do about it. But it all comes down to the same thing. I have to be selling something that people want to buy. It's not about me. It's about what 
what they're buying. So for example, a firm that does great work on deals and deals are scarce, the instinct would be to try to sell something else. I would resist that urge to go out and sell something else. Warren Buffett has a great saying. He says, when your business is floundering, it doesn't make a lot of sense to go into a new business you know nothing about. What I would say is this, what is the market condition that's changing? Like right now, this is mid-May 2017. Six months ago, deals, which we do, were raining from the sky. Everybody was doing deals and business was pouring in like crazy. Six months later, probably due to political uncertainty, deals have slowed up. Should I go out and try to sell a new product that, that maybe I don't have the expertise in? I think the answer is really a resounding no. And the reason I say that is this. I don't think deals are going away from the world. They're definitely not. But I know intellectually that deals come in, in waves. There's a ton of them, then there's not that many, and they boom and bust. I would say that the way I would adapt to that change in market conditions is I should be spending my time, since I'm not doing as many deals at this moment as I was six months ago, I should be out and about enthusiastically talking about my power niche, which is basically doing deals and joint ventures, etc., and meeting as many new parties in the real estate world as possible so that when the deals start happening again, I have more clients than ever and more business than ever. Answer one is, if my power niche is still alive, I would stick with it and I would not try to do something I don't really know much about. On the other hand, if it turned out that whatever I was doing was dead, let's say I was an ERISA lawyer and the statute got repealed, that's a different situation. I'd have to start from scratch building a new niche, which I would try to do and do the best I could at it. Strong response. You wouldn't want to pick up and do something else. Great advice. Use that time, since deals aren't being done, to make sure that you are seen in the market. Possibly try a new marketing strategy, if not a new business strategy. Strong response. Thank you. Bruce, there's a lot of innovation in the legal space today. Technology changes in the way people are selling and doing business development in legal with AFAs and retainer type agreements, looking at legal services firms like Axiom and others to augment the way that they're doing their business. And of course, legal technology, artificial intelligence, e-discovery, and all the things that come along with that. What have you seen in your space, in your world that you would consider innovative or in the legal space? I mean, all these things are striking fear in my heart appropriately. Artificial intelligence, Watson, the computer, and all these things, all this kind of stuff swirling around. You know, I'm running my firm. I'm constantly looking under every nook and cranny to see what is changing. And as of yet, this stuff has not really been that big a factor in terms of what we do, which is surprising to me because I would have thought these changes would be blasting through the industry in a material way. I think that if your business model is super sophisticated, high-end legal work, where really what the client wants you for is your judgment, your expertise, your ability to deal with people, either in litigation by winning in court or in front of a jury or in a deal, figuring out how to get it done, convincing the other parties of your position, bobbing and weaving and negotiation, give and take. That's what you're really selling. It's very, very difficult to see how artificial intelligence and all these other things are going to really have that much impact on what the client wants and what you're delivering. Someday it will. Nobody's more vigilant, reading everything, looking out for everything. But my guess is when a computer can negotiate a sophisticated legal transaction, I would say that human beings aren't going to have that much left to do. What is more quintessentially human than going before a judge and trying to convince her that your client is not guilty, coming up with it, whatever it is. I mean, how could a machine really do that? And once a machine could do that, what else human beings? 
colleagues be doing in the world? I kind of think that we lawyers might be the last ones to turn out the lights when artificial intelligence and other things like that take over. There's a lot of noise. The artificial intelligence word is actually starting to disappear and you're seeing other words, assisted intelligence. The thing that the technology is really doing is doing a lot of calculations really fast. And those calculations are basically looking at outcomes. I absolutely agree. There's still some time before we're going to see more of that in our world. Bruce, is there additional advice you would give those folks as they're starting their business development program? People starting their careers are usually much more open to new ideas than people who have done something for a long period of time. The advice I give is super, super simple and super, super important. Build your own power niche. With a power niche, you own something, okay? And you're useful. Without it, you are cannon fodder to be used by partners and clients. Now, I don't mean to imply that the clients are mean and nasty or the partners are mean and nasty. They may be the most wonderful, sweet people in the world that love you to death. However, if you have skill set that is identical to everyone else that works at the firm, that works in the profession, then you yourself are a commodity, and then no one's going to pay that much for you. I mean, think about it. It's not even, let's say, looking outward, looking inward at the job you have. If Jane and John Doe work for the law firm and the partner thinks you're exactly the same, well, then the logical decision for the partner is which one of you will work for the cheapest price and fire the other one. I mean, that's the decision at heart. Nobody would say it that way because it sounds awful, but you don't want to be that. You want to be Jane Doe, who's an expert in something, either industry-specific, legal-specific, or whatever. So the partner says, oh, wow, I love having Jane Doe around because she's so awesome. I need her for X, Y, and Z. And then Jane Doe becomes more and more important due to the expertise that she's developed in her power niche rather than she's exactly the same as John Doe. And well, you know, John will work for less. So I guess Jane would kind of shove her out. People don't think that way exactly, but that is exactly what goes on. One way or another, you have to develop in your career something that is of value. And it all comes down to the word I keep saying so much is the power niche. So that is the advice I give to millennials starting their career. Absolutely agree. And can't say it enough. It's true. There's a lot of competition out there. I had a general counsel on our program. His episode went live this morning. General counsel at a major corporation. And he basically said it is very competitive. Unless you're coming to me with something different and priced appropriately, we are not doing business together. It's very clear. Nobody cares how you're the same. They roll their eyes. They're bored when you're when you're telling them how many deals you've done and market share that people throw into these absolutely awful PowerPoints that just drive people to distraction. They only care about one thing. How are you different? And is that difference valuable to me? If it is, they're buying you and they'll pay your top price. If not, well, you're just like everyone else. You probably won't even get in the game. Great advice. Thank you. Bruce, you're enthusiastic. I so appreciate that. What do you enjoy most about the work that you do? I like this question. It sounds hokey, but it's true. I love my clients. I love my partners. I love the people at my firm. I love my firm itself. And, and I love the thrill of putting it all together and turning the firm into some successful thing. I like the competition, even though I said competition is evil. I like the fact that, you know, it's not so easy for us. You know, the other law firms, the other top law firms, I like having them around. They're my worthy adversaries and we define each other. What fun would it be if everyone else was awful and we were the only good one? I love the game. I love trying to make my law firm the best in the world in our niche. And I love the people I do with. It's just fun and exciting. Fantastic. Bruce, we appreciate you sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you so much, Nicole. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time.